Well, we return to our 1 Timothy series, so go ahead, grab your Bibles, get them open up at 1 Timothy chapter 1, and we'll be finishing out the chapter looking at what it means to have a pure life and a pure doctrine. As you turn there, let me give you a bit of a reminder of where we've been so far. The Apostle Paul, who's been divinely commissioned by Jesus, is writing a letter to Timothy, a young man in the service for the kingdom and for Christ. Paul has travelled to Macedonia and he's left behind Timothy in the church in Ephesus to deal with issues within the church family. We learned last week that these issues revolve around false teaching from those who have wandered away from a pure heart, a clear conscience and a sincere faith. Timothy has been commanded to stop these false teachers and restore sound doctrine to the church. And we learned that as we apply this to our own church setting, we must not be scared of false teachers. In fact, by the authority of scripture, we are to seek the silence of these false teachers. As we move into today's passage, we'll see that further to silencing these false teachers, we are to seek church leaders and really all followers of Christ to have a purity in life and a purity in doctrine. In other words, the church needs to sound different, look different and even think differently from the world. We'll see that all this is possible through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we walk through the passage, I would like you to notice two things. First, how Paul uses himself as an example. We see the outpouring of the gospel in his life and that transformation that comes from Jesus. Then I want you to notice the boldness that he uses that gospel for. In fact, he is so bold that once he has purity of his own life and purity of doctrine, he then seeks the same for the church and he takes on the false teachers so that he can ensure that within the church itself, there is purity of life and purity of doctrine. Again, what I'm trying to say here, what is going to come from the passage is that our lives should reflect what we believe in and what we believe in should be exemplified in our lives. We are to have pure lives in Christ and pure doctrine in Christ. Both go hand in hand. And when Paul sees this, he then applies it to the church and the church are expected to be obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ. So with that said, we're going to be heading into 1 Timothy chapter 1 and today we're going to start in verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful appointing me to his service. Having boldly declared that the false teachers should no longer have a platform to spout their nonsense, Paul now turns his attention away from the false teachers, away from what is untrue, away from what is leading people astray, now toward the gospel of Jesus. And it's exemplified in the Apostle Paul himself. Although on other times Paul has been bold enough to say, look at my life and imitate me as I imitate Christ, he takes a very different tact in verse 12. And maybe he's trying to show a different way to behave than these false teachers. Or maybe he's simply led to thankfulness for his own salvation as he considers what real gospel living is. And notice the centre of verse 12, that of thankfulness. And notice where it's given to. Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul knew the source of his salvation was in the risen Lord Jesus Christ as he says in Romans 3:24, justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It is in Jesus that Paul is granted strength to live a life of service for the kingdom. Remember, he's in and out of prison, yet in all circumstances, 
Paul can find the strength through Christ Jesus to spread the gospel of salvation in Jesus. Do you remember in Philippians when he's under house arrest, chained to the imperial guardsmen, he witnesses to the whole of the Roman guardsmen to the point where they're now speaking about this Paul who they have to be chained to and he keeps telling them the gospel. He finds the strength to share the gospel in unique circumstances. And it's in this service that the Lord has judged Paul as faithful. Do you see, Paul doesn't create his faithfulness. The Lord determines him as faithful through continual renewal and strengthening to do the task that he is given. So it is through the grace of God that Paul has been saved, strengthened, judged faithful, and therefore he has been appointed to long-term service for the kingdom. The word for service here in verse 12 is the Greek word diakonia, which refers to a lowly and humble service. This was not about high-ranking position, although Paul had one. It wasn't about success, although Paul had success for the kingdom. It was about a daily service to the king. It was only possible because Jesus made it possible. It would often mean suffering, for the sake of the king. As Paul says in Galatians 6:17, from now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. I think it was William Barclay that said, Paul was saved to serve. He was saved to serve King Jesus. And yes, that would mean suffering, but the Lord Jesus would strengthen him and determine him faithful to continue in that service. What a contrast to the false teachers that were focused on how many followers they had on their own personal gain. They wanted recognition and authority where Paul humbly served even to the point of suffering. And for this, surprisingly, Paul is thankful. Verse 13, though I formerly was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul didn't start as a humble servant. He was in fact very different before he met Jesus. He was a blasphemer, meaning he slandered God and spoke evil of him. He hated Jesus and everything he stood for. And he, more than that, he even spoke evil against Jesus. And Paul would go about convincing others, even commanding others to do the same, speaking evil against Jesus. But he did more than speak evil. He persecuted the church. And we have several examples in Acts of this persecution. First in Acts chapter 8 verse 3, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Then in Acts 9.1, but Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And then finally, Acts 26.10, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. You see, Paul had been a violent bully of the church, seeking out Christians to punish them, even sentencing them to death. You would not find anyone else that hated the church more than Paul did. Yet despite this, despite his hatred of Jesus, Paul was shown the mercy of God. If grace brought about the salvation of Paul, mercy took away the misery that the persecution had caused. 
Paul's life was changed. His behaviour was transformed and his heart no longer full of hatred and anger, instead full of love for King Jesus. When Paul was faced with the truth of Jesus, the very one that he was persecuting, he not only believed, but through mercy of God, he was changed. Although the sin of Paul was vast and really quite evil, the grace of God was more. In fact, the grace of God was so abundant that it overflowed, covering all of Paul's sin. That was his saving faith. Ephesians 2.8 For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. His hatred was turned into the outworking of the love of Jesus, and his disbelief and ignorance turned into faith. Again, remember, Paul has gone after the false teachers, seeking for them to be silenced. And what better way to silence them than to show them that he was once an evil man and through no effort of his own, he was saved through Jesus, transformed through that salvation and now lives in service for the kingdom. He puts himself up as the example to put against the false teachers and show that the gospel indeed works through King Jesus. Let's continue in verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Now, when you see in scripture, this saying is trustworthy, what follows is recognized as a summary of a key doctrine. And in this case, it's the summary of the gospel. You see, Paul has just used himself as an example of the gospel. So now he declares the gospel in a simple and direct manner. He is leaving Timothy, the church and the false teachers in no doubt to what the truth is. His testimony is not good enough. It is good at showing what Christ can do, but he must teach them the gospel so that they can have the gospel transformation in their lives too. And what is the gospel? That Christ Jesus, already in existence, came into this world, meaning became a human man. He came so that he could save sinners and deliver them from darkness. Mark 2.17, and when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Paul recognises that when thinking about these sinners that Jesus came to save, Paul was the foremost. He was the worst of the worst. He was a lost cause. Remember, he sentenced people, he committed people that followed Jesus to death. Could you get any worse than Paul. Yet Christ came to save even Paul from his sin. And it's in this truth that we see the grace of God. Paul was living proof of the glory of God. For if Paul can be saved, then anyone can be saved. Nobody is too far gone to be covered by the salvation that we find in Jesus. And in this statement, we see both the challenge to the false teachers in that they clearly are teaching error. And in this truth, they should have been teaching, which is the gospel that transforms life. But we also see the hope for the false teachers, for they too can know the grace of God, turn from their wicked ways, have their sins be forgiven and be strengthened in Jesus. You see, Paul is given Timothy and he's backed it up with, he's, Paul is given a testimony rather, and he's backed it up with sound doctrine. And there's nowhere to hide, nothing else to say. 
And what is changing here is the message that's been spoken in the church. First, it was false teaching, leading people astray with endless discussions and myths and genealogies. Now, Paul is changing the discussion to the gospel of Jesus Christ through the testimony of his life and the teaching of sound doctrine. The false teachers are either challenged because they need to stop or they are finding hope because they now know that they too can have this gospel transformation. And all this is summed up in a word of praise in verse 17. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul began with thanksgiving as he reflects on what Jesus has done for him. Now he turns to what is known as a doxology, true statements in praise to the king of ages, Jesus. Jesus is immortal. God cannot perish. He cannot end. He cannot be corrupted. He is invisible. We cannot know God unless he reveals himself to us. He is the only God. There is none that compare. All else is created and no other man-made idol can stand against God. He is the only one that deserves all honour and glory for he is supreme. He is the creator God. He is the saviour through Jesus and he is the spirit who guides us each day to see that gospel transformation in our lives. So do you see how it ends? That all things are true in Christ and that all things in Christ are deserving of praise, not just now, but forever and ever. Again, how different from the false teachers who make it all about them, all about their thinking, all about their debates. Paul can barely take his eyes off Jesus for he is so brilliant and nothing compares that he ends this statement of testimony and doctrine teaching with the praises of his name, not just for now, but forever and ever. So with testimony shared, doctrine declared and praises given, how is Paul now going to apply this to the setting that we find ourselves in? With Timothy, the young pastor, trying to teach and guide the church and false teachers ravaging the church. Timothy has this almighty task. So why is Paul's shared testimony given doctrine and praise Jesus? Let's continue in verse 18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. I'm just going to pause there halfway through the verse. Remember, charge means command. Paul had a command that he entrusted or he commissioned to Timothy to obey. He was to remain focused on the task until its completion. As Paul writes into Timothy 2.4, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Timothy was to guard the truth and he was to apply the truth and complete the task. He was to take, the Timoth- to take Paul's testimony and he was to teach sound doctrine and he was to silence the false teachers. But more than that, he was then commissioned to teach the truth in the church. You see, once you take away the false teaching, once you take away that uh, falsity, that fake religion, you must replace it with something else or the devil will come back in. And Timothy is to replace it with sound doctrine and good teaching. Paul refers to this command, this commission, as to wage the good warfare or fight the good fight. Now the Greek word here for good, kalos, refers to something as noble or excellent. The task of guarding the truth of God's word and proclaiming the gospel is both noble and excellent. But notice, 
it is also a warfare. It is a fight. It is a fight to be obedient to the command and the commission. It's not going to be easy for Timothy. He's going to have to fight for the truth. He's going to have to wage war against these false teachers and he's likely to suffer as he does so. Yet it's possible if he holds on to faith and a good conscience that he can be obedient and bring about sound doctrine in the church. He is to keep the faith, meaning he's to hold true to the word of God and the gospel. He's to show an unwavering devotion to Jesus and his faith in him. More than that, he's to live with a good conscience, living as one that is blameless. The two go together. It refers to a purity in life, a good conscience, and a purity in doctrine, holding firm to the faith. Timothy must hold fast to both, for if there is a danger in not holding on to it, we see this in verse 19. Either Timothy holds to the truth, or verse 19. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, and among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So Timothy has a choice here. If he holds on to the faith, if he has a clear conscience, if he preaches the word of God and silences the false teachers, then they will see great change in the church. But if he lets go, then this is what happens. Because there are some, meaning false teachers, and again, false teachers are those who have wandered away from a pure heart, a sound conscience, a clear conscience, and a sincere faith, who have shipwrecked their faith. They've rejected purity in life and doctrine and they now wreak havoc in their own lives and the life of the church. They had bad theology and therefore they've now rejected all good morals. They have professed faith, but they're devoid of any truth. They have wrecked their faith as they sought self over Jesus, prestige over service, followers over devotion. And Paul gives two examples of such individuals, Hymenaeus and Alexander. Little is known about them, but what we do know is they rejected purity of life and doctrine. And so now Paul has had to hand them over to Satan, which means that they were removed from the church. They were removed from membership. And there's two clear lessons from this. Timothy has already been commanded to clear the church of false teachers who profess, but inwardly are devoid of the truth. Therefore, these two men have to be removed, one, to protect the church Only sound doctrine is to be preached. Only the testimony of the gospel should be given. Only the word of God should remain resolute within the church. Where what we have here is false teaching rising and therefore they have to be removed for the protection of the church so that nobody would be led astray. But secondly, Paul removes them from the protection of the church. We protect the church, but the church also brings about protection. And Paul removes them from that because they can so easily hide in their sin. And so he sends them out into the world. And the aim is that they would learn the lesson not to blaspheme against God and his word after they've been removed from the church, removed from the protection of the church, removed from the the relationships that they have, and they are left alone outside of the church. It is in that that Paul prays that they would have the lesson not to blaspheme against God's word. And we need to note here that this was not a permanent move. The hope and prayer was that they would learn this lesson, they would confess their sin, they would repent from it, they would find forgiveness in Jesus, and then they would be wonderfully restored to the church. However, Paul can't force this process on them. It was for these two individuals to seek humility rather than sin before the process of removal could be reversed. So now you see, Paul is both serious about the gospel and the defence of the truth with with the church itself at stake. 
It is now for Timothy to take up that fight, to wage the warfare against these individuals and lead the people into sound doctrine. He was to protect the church in Ephesus and the gospel message that was being proclaimed. And this was the choice before Timothy. He either does it or he shipwrecks his faith. That is the choice before him. And Paul encourages him, commands him, commissions him to take up the challenge and fight the good fight. Now, just as Paul applied the lessons of gospel testimony, gospel and doctrine teaching and the protection of the church to Timothy, we now have to apply it to our own church setting and to our own lives. And really, I just want to apply it in two ways today. First, the gospel is for you. Paul couldn't be any clearer. There is nobody too filthy, too evil, too sinful, too far gone that the gospel cannot transform. Jesus came into this world to save sinners, not to condemn them. So there is an opportunity for all to find forgiveness, to find freedom, to find new life in Jesus. It was John Calvin that said, Since no man is excluded from calling upon God, the gate of salvation is open to all. There is nothing else to hinder us from entering but our own belief. You see, God cannot force you to believe in his gift of Jesus and salvation in his name, but he can show you. He shows you in the death and resurrection of Jesus that he has the power to change you. He shows you through the many testimonies like Paul of complete life transformation that the message can change your heart, that Jesus is for you and he can transform you. And he can show you in today's passage that you can either choose to reject Jesus and totally shipwreck your faith and your life and your life will be empty because of it, or you can accept the gift of Jesus, be transformed, be totally forgiven, be completely from, free from sin, and be completely free from the misery of sin. Jesus and the gospel is for you, and there is always a choice, a choice of the negative, a choice of emptiness, a choice of sin, a choice of eternal life without God, or a choice of freedom, a choice of life, a choice of Christ, a choice of relationship with our Saviour. So the message is clear. We have a sin problem and it can only be dealt with through Jesus. God has given us Jesus, given us a solution, given us the reward in Christ, given us the gospel. The question comes down to, what will you make of it? Will you take hold of the gift? Will you take hold of new life and forgiveness? Or will you reject it? That is your choice and one you must make. The second thing that I want to point out just before we end is that we need to demolish error and contend for the truth. Demolish error and contend for the truth. There are two things we must do. We must take seriously the need to take down false teachers and false doctrine, but we must replace it with the truth. If you do not do the second, bringing the truth, then we are an empty church. If we do not do the first, removing the false teaching, then we're no church at all. We live in a society where we have been taught that we can say and do what we please and nobody is allowed to challenge it. Yet the church should behave, think and speak differently from the world. There's but one way of living and that way is taught in the Bible. We must contend for the truth. We must fight to keep the words of God at the centre of how we live as the church. Not only does this mean that we need to know it, through the teaching and studying of it, but we must live it and be an example to others so that they would know what it means to live life in the truth. Now, it continually surprises me that many Christians don't know their Bibles or are ignorant to the applications. We must know the word if we're to contend for the word. 
I once watched a, a little video that basically was a non-Christian asking a Christian questions about the Bible and the Christian was stumped and the non-Christian responded with, how am I meant to believe in the God of your Bible if you don't even seem to believe in the God of your Bible? Essentially, we must know the word of God, we must know the gospel, we must know sound doctrine if we're to contend, protect and proclaim it. Yet there is also another serious matter that we see in this passage, and that is Christians who no longer behave, speak or even think in godly ways. Just as Paul encouraged us to live life full of grace, we are to also extend that grace to those individuals who have begun wandering away from Christ Jesus. We are to extend them the grace of confessing, repenting, forgiving, restoring, but there are some who will completely reject the word of God. They'll completely reject the application. And because of this, we must take it seriously and remove such individuals from membership to protect the church. So this passage really is a warning. The church will be protected by authority of scripture. We will remove those who are wreaking havoc by leading the people astray. Having rejected all offers of grace, there's nothing left to do but to remove them from the church. Why? Because the body of Christ must be protected. Why? Because we do not wish anyone to be led astray. Why? Because the beauty of Christ and salvation in his name is the only thing for us to grasp. We do so in hope. We protect the church in hope, knowing that Jesus is still at work, knowing that Jesus can bring salvation even to the vilest of people. We do so in protection of the followers of Jesus. At Titus 3 from verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. And so, from our passage today, we march on to take the gospel to those who are yet to hear it. We march on waging warfare against those who are twisted. We march on knowing that some are going to attack and wreak havoc. We march on knowing that we'll have to enact discipline in the church. We march on knowing that it's an almighty task. And we march on for the sake of Jesus. When Jesus is centre stage, we are able to march on. Let's pray. Father, we do indeed pray that anyone that has been listening to this sermon or watching this sermon that does not know you yet would know now that the gospel is for them, that they are not too far gone to know the love of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we pray that you would come close to them, that they would know Jesus as their saviour and that they would find new life in him. But, Father, we also pray that we would take seriously those who would try and wreak havoc in the church. And Father, we pray that we would protect the church, we would protect your family, that we would protect the sound doctrine that is taught. And Father, if it comes to discipline, we pray that we would be bold enough to do so. And as Titus tells us, Father, we pray that we would have nothing to do with things that would cause division. Instead, we would be all for Jesus, united in him, focused on him, marching forward for the sake of the kingdom. And so Father, we pray this in your name. Amen.